Hey, welcome to the Invitation Church podcast. Tonight, I want to talk to you about jingles that companies and businesses use uh, to help you remember their business, remember the product that uh, they're selling. And so Huggies is a diaper company and they used to have commercials on TV all the time. I don't see them as much as I used to, but they had this little jingle, Huggies, I'm a, that's right, you got it, big kid now, uh, Kit Kat bar, like give me a break, give me a break, break me off a piece of that, Kit Kat bar, you got it, Subway, like remember that whole like $5 foot long jingle that they use, Subway? Um, McDonald's would be another one. Um, McDonald's, I'm, you got it, I'm loving it. State Farm, like a good neighbor. State Farms, they're even, uh, like there's local ones like Hy-Vee. Hy-Vee, where there's a helpful smile in every aisle. You're welcome. If that stuff wasn't in your head, hopefully some of it uh, will stick. Uh, tonight we're in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following it's a part of a small collection of places in the scriptures where the authors use songs or poems to communicate God's truth you know in the Old Testament we have places the Psalms and the Proverbs uh, and different places that kind of use songs and poems to communicate truth uh, that they're going to enable you to to remember and to, to grab on uh, to what is being communicated like it's powerful like it's one thing to be told something but it's another thing to be able to remember it so even when you are learning the letters of the alphabet like all the way back to that moment like it's just a bunch of random letters without a song behind it to help you remember A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Like it's random letters without the music behind it. And this particular poem from Paul and most likely Timothy too is used by the, the early church to hold on to the truth about Jesus. And why? Because memories, fade, truth slips, and in the kingdom of God, usefulness is tied to perseverance. So usefulness in the kingdom of God is tied to persevering through difficult seasons, through times when we forget what's true about us, about God, about the world. And and typically Paul writes in these really long, complex sentences. There's places in the scriptures where like an entire chapter of a letter that he writes is one sentence. He just keeps going on and on and on and on. Like, I don't know if you know anybody like that, but here he does something totally different. He uses a hymn to combat the false teachers in Colossae. There was a a group of people who were teaching things about God and about Jesus that were not true. And Paul hears about that. And so then he writes this letter. But I think sometimes when we come to the scriptures, like we're really harsh on the people who are getting it wrong, like on all the false teachers. And I think what's true is that in some way we are all false teachers. Like, I am a false teacher. Like, before you go find another church, before you turn off the podcast, I just want to be able to confess to you tonight that what I read in the scriptures is so often aspirational for me. 
even sometimes more than it is practiced. Like there's so much that I am still growing into as a follower of Jesus. And so in that way, for me to be a teacher, I also need to be a learner because so much is aspirational for me. And it is my heart that it is practiced. But like Luke chapter seven, judge not and you'll not be judged, condemn not, and you will not be condemned, forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Like, is that aspirational or is that practice? Matthew chapter six, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. Is it aspirational or is it practice? James chapter one, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, like, is that aspirational or is that practice? John chapter 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Is this aspirational or is this practice? First Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Is it aspirational or is it practice? Philippians chapter 4, finally brothers and sisters. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Is that aspirational or is it practiced? And even just as we think through that tonight, like we just, I think, come to a place where we realize that like we have all been false teachers and what we need more than the the words we need a way to remember so that these things might go from being aspirational truth to practiced truth and that's why paul steps out of his normal mode of communication and he writes this poem so they may hear the truth of god in a new way and so in his conflict against false teaching, Paul places emphasis on the supremacy of Christ, both in his creation of the world and in his redemption of the world. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning verse 15. Here's the hymn. Here's the poem. Here's the song. Here's the jingle, <laughs> if you will. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So number one tonight, Christ is the image of God. Like the language of the image of God pulls us all the way back to the opening verses of the Bible. Genesis 1, chapter 20, or verse 26 and 28. Like where we're told that, that we all have been created in God's image, male and female, and into the presence of God's image in each and every human being who walks the earth, each and every person. And that's, I think, challenging for some of us because we've all bumped into people. We have regular interactions with people where sometimes that is hard to believe that this person that I don't get along with, that I don't agree with, that I've come to some different conclusions about how life Life works and what the world's all about and where it's heading than this particular person but that person has been made in the image of God the person that you pray for the least is made in the image of God the person that you disagree with most made in the image of God the, the person that you're most likely to avoid in a public space is made in the image of God and Barbara Brown Taylor 
says that part of our call as followers of Jesus is to be detectives of divinity. And what she means is that we have to have open eyes and open ears and open hearts to what God is up to in the world, not just in us, but in other people, to be a detective of divinity because God is doing a million things and we're probably aware of two or three of them. And so she will say that the the more we become open, the more that we become aware to the activity and the movement of the Spirit in our lives, the, the more deeply in love we become with God and the more obedient we become as his children. So the image of God, though, is language in both the Old Testament and also in Judaism in general. It was often related to humans more than to anything else. But here, what's so interesting is it gets attached to Christ. Like in the Old Testament and in Judaism, it was like, yeah, male and female human beings are made in the image of God. But here it's attached to Christ. And later... In the letter, Paul will come back to this image when he tells the Colossians that there's a new self. This is in chapter 3. There's a new self that's being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. So Christ is the image of God. This word translated image is this word icon, and, and it really expresses two ideas. First, it expresses the idea of likeness. So like not like a drawing where you sort of can make out what it is, but more of a reflection in a mirror. So Jesus mirrors God. So Jesus' love is God's love. Jesus' grace is God's grace. Jesus' forgiveness is God's forgiveness. Jesus' power is God's power. Jesus' compassion is God's compassion. So it's his likeness. So it's likeness, but it's also display. Like I love to think about it in this way that God becomes observable in Jesus. Like God is invisible, which does not just mean that he cannot be seen with our physical eyes, but the fact like God is unknowable without Jesus. So he is the image of the invisible God. And in the exalted Christ, the unknowable God becomes known. And I just think that's so beautiful that he is God's revelation. Like Paul knew that Jesus is God just as God the Father is God. And so in this place in the letter, he declares with great conviction that Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father. So this is why in the, in the gospel, Jesus will turn to Philip, the disciple. Like Philip's one of those disciples you don't hear a lot about, but there's this moment in John 14 and he turns to Philip and he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus mirrors God. He reveals what he is like in the world. So Christ is the image of God, number one. Number two, Christ is over all creation. Paul says in this hymn, in this song, in this jingle, that he's the firstborn. In Greek, it's this word protokos, which describes priority in time, but also supremacy in rank. So I don't want you to think like firstborn, like he's the one who is first in birth order, like your older brother or your older sister. That's not really what's being discussed. I want you to think more about authority. So rather than being the firstborn in the family, I want you to think about the person who sits in first chair, like in the high school band. Like I played tenor saxophone, 
in high school and I was always second chair because there was this kid who was always better than me and he would always have first chair like I would try out to beat him all the time and it never worked out so once you kind of got placed you could you could challenge and so you go to the teacher and say hey I'd like to try for first chair even though I've already tried out I think I can beat this person out and so then you'd have to do the challenge and then I think you could do like two or three challenges during the semester. I always used up all my challenges, always <laughs> ended the same way. Second chair in jazz too. Shoot, maybe in heaven will be different. But that was my experience. But there's a place of authority in first chair. So when you're first chair tenor saxophone jazz band, you get all the solos. That's just how it works. It's a place of authority. And then I play second part on all of those other things. So it's not just that someone was born first, but, but they have authority. But the problem is a little bit, the language, this language has led some people to say that, oh, like, so then Christ must be a created being. And this is a conclusion that the church leader Arius drew in the fourth century. So like way, 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 way far back. There's this guy named Arius and his views resulted in a written confession called the Nicene Creed, declaring that Christ was eternally begotten of the Father. So begotten, not made, of the same substance with the Father. And so he is not a created being, but he's begotten of God, comes from God. So Jesus is both before all created things, which has to do with time, and then he is also above all created things. That has to do with authority. So to be firstborn, is priority in time and supremacy and rank. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or, or thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created, watch this, by him and for him. So number three, Christ is the creator of all things. Number two, Christ is overall creation. Number one, Christ is the image of God. So there's no doubt that Jesus is the author of all creation. He himself is not a created being. When we behold the wonder and the glory of the world that Jesus created, we worship and honor him all the more. But Paul wants to bring out some particular things that bow to him. And so what are those things? We can look at them. Things in heaven bow to him. Things on earth bow to him. Things that are visible bow to him. Things that are invisible bow to him. Thrones bow to him. Powers bow to him. Rulers bow to him. Authorities bow to him. All things bow to Jesus. So he uses these thrones. Uh, thrones represent power. And what we have to understand about thrones, thrones are, are powers that are both defeated and they're also active. So because Jesus comes and he gives his life on a Roman cross, he's buried in a tomb and he's raised to life in through the Spirit's power on the third day, he defeats all other thrones. He defeats all other powers. So the, the throne of Rome defeated. The throne of Babylon defeated all of the thrones in every place 
defeated, but they're also active because we are waiting for the, the final culmination of the promise for God to redeem and to restore and to repair and rule in his power and authority and love. So I want to talk tonight about the throne of discouragement. Like how many days, how many weeks, how many moments do you spend in your life bowing down to the throne of discouragement? How about the throne of fear? How about the throne of pleasure? How about the throne of status? Paul wants to remind the Colossians that while there are active thrones in the world, as we, as we wait for the return of Jesus, those active thrones are defeated thrones. So he's the image of God. He's the he's over all creation. He's the creator of all things. Number 4, Christ is before all things. Verse 17, he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And so the writers of scripture understood Jesus as unoriginated and eternal he is reiterating that jesus is not like god he is god like he was before all things like if you can think of a thing he was before it if you can think of a moment he was before it like he exists in eternity past so jesus doesn't just show up on the scene when he was born to Mary and Joseph. He is ruling and reigning in grace and power and love at the very beginning of the creation of the world with the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always are existing together. They're always ruling together. They're always reigning together. And they are to be worshipped as one God in three persons. So Christ is before all things. Number five, Christ holds all things together. The idea here is that Jesus is both the unifying principle and, this is amazing, the personal sustainer and preserver of creation. So what holds the universe together is not an idea, it's not a virtue, but it's a person. Like the resurrected Christ, like the, the Jesus with a wound in his side and, and nail wounds in his hands. So what is he holding together? He is holding together. Jesus is the created order. So without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Um, gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbit. In fact, here's something crazy. Even if six hours were added to our day, so we went from a 24-hour day to a 30-hour day, the Earth would spin so slowly that all human life would cease immediately. And so as is true of every line in this hymn, there is a particular application to for these brand new Christians in Colossae who were being tempted to find meaning by pursuing other religious options in their city. Like it's not like Jesus was the only option. It's not like Christianity was the only option. Like Rome wanted to reduce, to introduce a whole bunch of pagan gods. God of the sea and God of the land and God of the sun and God of love and God of the harvest and God of fertility. Like there was a God for everything. There was a throne for everything. 
And that's why we can read this thousands of years later and find so much help and so much hope and so much life in these words because in a very real way we live in a city like Colossae. And so Paul's responding. He wants them to understand that every human life revolves around something. But what gets placed at the center impacts everything. That every human life revolves around something. And what gets placed at the center impacts everything. And so for the two-year-old that you know, like their life revolves around something. For every 10-year-old that you know, their life revolves around something. Every coworker you have, every person you see driving around town, everyone's life revolves around something. And Paul wants to talk to this new Jesus community, these brand new disciples, that you just need to be careful what your life revolves around. Because what gets placed at the center, what it revolves around, is going to impact everything. It's going to impact your hope. It's going to impact your perspective. It's going to impact your relationships. It's going to impact your words. It's going to impact your choices and and decisions and values. So he holds all things together. He's holding together the created order. He's holding together you. Like he knows you. He knows your name. He sees your heart. He's holding you together. Like on the days and the moments when you feel like you are falling apart. You are actually being held together by the one who holds the created order together. And so if he can keep the sun from falling out of the sky, if he can keep the earth moving, if he can keep the the, the planets doing what they are supposed to do, like if he's able to do all of that, if he's able to make sure that the temperatures in the universe stay in the ranges they're supposed to, if he can manage all of that, Like, can he manage to hold you together? He's holding the created order together. He's holding you together. He's holding together the person you love most. Like, the person you pray about most. The person you worry about most. Like, he's holding them together. And he's holding together families touched by tragedy. He's holding together communities of faith struggling to survive. Psalm 33 says this, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. The horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. And I love that today. That the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. On those who will bow before the throne of King Jesus. On those whose hope is not in circumstances, but in his unfailing love to do a couple things. What does his unfailing love do? It doesn't just, the spoiler alert, it doesn't just make you feel better. It doesn't take away your problems. But what does it do? It delivers them from death. 
and keep them alive in famine. Doesn't take away the season of famine, but it delivers you from death and it keeps you alive in those seasons. So question tonight, like, is there something that you think the Lord might say that you are still trying to hold together? Like, is his experience of you that you desire to still hold some things together? And so aren't really that interested in allowing him to be the Christ that holds the created order together and holds you together and holds together the person that you love most. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So Christ is the image of God. He's over all creation. He's the creator of all things. He's before all things. He holds all things together and he is the head of the church. And Paul's not talking to the Colossians about the building Jesus disciples gathering, but about the movement that they have given their lives to. Christ is the head of the church. And so if there's anything good that happens among the people of God. It's because Christ has empowered it. If there's any decision based in wisdom, it's because Christ has empowered it. If there's any life change happening in anyone, it's because the Lord has caused them to wake up from their slumber. He has made them alive with Christ. He's the head of the church. And number seven, Christ is our pattern for resurrection. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So he's the pattern for resurrection. So in Jewish theology, following some passages from the Old Testament, like Daniel 12 and Ezekiel 37 and other places, like they understood and they viewed the resurrection of physical bodies from the state of death in a particular way. Like a, as an event that would signal the coming of God in final kingdom power. So the resurrection does something. The resurrection of Christ kicks off this end time resurrection. Like his resurrection guarantees the reality of and creates the context for the resurrection of all who will follow. So what does that mean? It means that he's not the, the first to experience resurrection. He's the founder of the life that comes after death. He is our pattern. So what happens to Jesus on Easter morning, like that moment will happen to us. Like we will fall asleep in death, but we will be raised to life and have a glorious resurrection just like he did. He is the pattern. Like he is the firstborn from among the dead. And every single person who would trust him, who would find life in the name of Jesus, will follow in that same pattern. Verse 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace 
through his blood shed on the cross. Christ is our pattern for resurrection. He's the head of the church. He holds all things together. He's before all things. He's the creator of all things. He's over all creation. He's the image of God. And he's the dwelling place for the fullness of God. And there's a Greek word here for dwell that, it, that is used here. And in, in, it's this active, aorist, infinitive verb meaning permanent dwelling. Like you can understand it in this way, that, that God in all of his fullness has chosen to continually dwell in Christ. There's an entirely different word used for a temporary dwelling place, but Paul uses this particular word here because he needed to emphasize the idea that Jesus was not just temporarily God, but he was permanently God. And the fullness is not temporary fullness. The fullness is permanent fullness. And the fullness has been put into Jesus Christ. Not into a church, not into a pastor, not into a building, not into an event or a political party or a method or a program or even the Bible. The fullness has not even been put into the Bible. The fullness has been put into who? Into Jesus. Into what kind of Jesus? The resurrected Jesus. The Jesus who is our what? Who is our pattern. Who's the head of the church. Who holds all things together. Who's before all things. Who's the creator of all things. Who's over all creation. Who's the image of God. That Jesus Christ becomes a dwelling place for all of God's fullness. And so the false teachers in Colossae were inviting these brand new Christians to experience true fullness, air quotes, by following their own conclusions, their own philosophies, their own values. And in hearing that, Paul hits back with this hymn saying, no, the fullness that you are seeking is to be found in Christ. The beauty that you are seeking is to be found in Christ. The purpose that you're seeking is to be found in Christ. The peace that you are seeking is to be found in Christ. The love, the acceptance, the belonging, the desire, all of the things that you are chasing in your life, all the things that you're seeking, they're found in Christ because all of the fullness, all of the blessing, all of the hope, all of the life has been placed in my son. So it's not found in what you can produce. It's not found in what you can create. It's not found in what you can experience or what you can learn, but it is found, for crying out loud, in belonging to the God whose fullness fills your life. No matter where you find yourself, what problems stare you down or what pain is present in your life. So Paul's claim that all of the fullness was pleased to dwell in him, I think also echoes this Old Testament description of God's dwelling in the temple. Psalm 68, 16 describes the temple mount. God has been pleased to dwell in it. And in a typical New Testament emphasis, Christ replaces the temple as the place where God now dwells. And God was pleased, thankful, proud, happy, joyful to have all of his fullness dwell in his son. That this is now where all that can be known and experienced about God is to be found. 
He's the dwelling place for the fullness of God. He's the pattern for our resurrection. He's the head of the church. He holds all things together. He's before all things. He's the creator of all things. He's over all creation. He is the image of God. And lastly, he's the reconciler and peacemaker. So if all things were created by him and through him and for him, that requires that a world broken by sin would be rescued by him. And in a situation where these new Christians are, are being told by false teachers of their day that the death of Jesus didn't happen and that he just appeared to suffer, Paul hits back with a message spoken by the flesh of Jesus. The blood of his cross speaks to them and us tonight of the real physical death of Jesus Christ in our place on our behalf before God. That literal death in our place and the literal curse he bore on our behalf is what saves us. Like there is a cup of curse, there is a cup of suffering that Jesus drinks. And so he he drinks the, the cup that is filled with every kind of sickness anyone will ever experience. He drinks the cup filled with all of the, the curse of violence that everyone will ever experience, anyone will ever experience, the cup of any abuse, emotional, physical, or otherwise. In that cup, he takes all of that on and that covers him. And he drains it of its power and he stands victorious over it. Because he's the reconciler. And he is the peacemaker. And the peace that God seeks, it's this peace that applies to humans in their relationship with God. It's a peace that applies to humans in their relationship with each other. It's a peace that applies to humans in their relationship with the natural world, with the created order. He is reconciler. He is peacemaker. And then verse 21 and 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So here's what Paul loves to do. He loves to contrast the past and the present. So by using these words once and now, once you were alienated, but now. So once you were this, once you were lost and now you are found. Once you were dead and now you are alive. Once you fought against God and now you are a child of God. Like this is Paul's experience. Once you were a persecutor of Christians and now you're a pastor. And I love at the end that he says that he has become a servant. Of what? He's become a servant of the gospel. 
It's interesting, he doesn't talk like this in many other places. He'll often say that he's a servant of Christ, he's a slave of Christ, but here he says he's a servant of the gospel. So, what is a servant of the gospel? It's someone who knows that they were once alienated. It's someone who knows that they were enemies in their minds. Isn't that so powerful tonight? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies, look at those three words, in your minds, because of your evil behavior. Man, do you just know tonight, like there's so many people who think that they are, God is their enemy, and God just doesn't feel that way about them. Like God feels very fatherly about them very familial about them but they feel like they were enemies in their minds servant of the gospels knows they were once alienated knows that they were enemies in their minds they a servant of the gospel knows they're reconciled by christ's physical body through death and that they're holy in his sight they're without blemish they're free from accusation and they continue in their faith unmoved from the hope in the gospel. So here's what Paul tells this community of Jesus followers, this church in this city. There's always going to be false teachers. So you need to continue in your faith. Like you need to keep going. You need to keep walking. You need to keep asking questions. You need to keep seeking to worship him and obey him and bring glory and honor and praise to him. And if you asked me, like, okay, how would I put this section of scripture in a sentence? How would I explain this to a child? I would say it like this. That God made me. Because he's over all creation. He rescued me. And he belongs at the center. He made me, he rescued me, he belongs at the center. He made me, he rescued me, he belongs at the center. And I just believe when we wake up every morning, we need to sing this song. He made me, he rescued me, he belongs at the center. When we are frustrated and tired and done, we need to sing the song. He made me, he rescued me, he belongs at the center. When things feel like they're falling apart in our family or in our work or in our world, he made me, he rescued me, he belongs at the center. When we are filled with grief and fear and uncertainty and doubt and pain, he made me, he rescued me, he belongs at the center. When we feel disoriented and lost and tired and weary, he made me. He rescued me. He belongs at the center. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he made me. He rescued me. He belongs at the center. And if there's a song that's worth singing in our day, a song, a song that is worth singing in our time, it's this song in Colossians chapter 1. He made me. He rescued me. He belongs at the center. So why does Paul write this poem? Why does he write this song to the Colossians? It's because he needs them to remember that Christ is the reconciler and peacemaker. 
but he's the dwelling place for the fullness of God. He's the pattern for our resurrection. He's the head of the church. He holds all things together. He's before all things. He's the creator of all things. He's over all creation. And he's the image of the invisible God. He made me. He rescued me. He belongs at the center. May that be the song that you sing all the days of your life. Grace and peace.